ketchup, mayonnaise, sweet pickle relish, mustard, paprika, garlic powder, and onion powder. According to the internet, which we know is always correct, those ingredients make up the secret sauce in McDonald's Big Mac. Let's try another one, see if you can guess this one. Honey mustard, barbecue sauce, and ranch dressing. That's right, according to a tweet in 2012 by the company themselves, those three ingredients make up the basis for the world famous Chick-fil-A sauce. Now you're getting hungry, right? Let's do one more. Read it, explain it, apply it. That's what I call the secret sauce of a great sermon. Read it, explain it, apply it. The secret sauce of a great sermon and a great Bible study. It's not really much more complicated than that. I mean, it's important that the preacher or the teacher are people of integrity. That's important. If the man behind the message is a hypocrite, it kind of ruins the message, doesn't it? It's important that the Holy Spirit is at work in the sermon. The Holy Spirit helps the sermon stick the landing, so to speak. It's important for the preacher to be passionate about what he's preaching. Nobody buys a book with a dull cover, no matter how great the content. And if the preacher doesn't truly believe in, and feel what he's preaching, then you won't truly believe and feel what the Lord is doing at work in the Word. But at the end of the day, it turns out the very basic ingredients for a good sermon is ingredients that you could find on any shelf anywhere. Read the Bible, explain the Bible, apply the Bible. Today's sermon is going to take a sneak peek into the secret sauce of preaching and teaching. But don't worry, because I recognize that about 99% of you will never preach from a pulpit. But this is still applicable to you. It's ser the sermon is still for you. The majority of you uh, will be able to draw application from this text and apply it to your individual Bible study time. And many of you I know are teachers in the church to various degrees and levels. You'll be able to apply the text of Scripture to that time as well. Now, speaking of Bibles, we do have a few ushers that are willing to hand out a few Bibles for you. If you uh, need a Bible, just raise your hand. We're happy to give you one. This is our gift to you. We believe it's that important that you have the Word of God uh, with you today. We're going to be reading in Nehemiah chapter 8. So you can open up your Bibles to that, Nehemiah 8. And on the screen, you're going to see that Nehemiah 8 is the beginning of the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. If we have that uh, chart up there, I'm not sure if we have a copy of the chart or not. Perhaps not. Well, Nehemiah 8, it, there you go, it's there. So see, Nehemiah 8 is the beginning of the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Israelites have returned after 70 years of exile. They re-enter the promised land. In Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. In Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls of the city. And now in Nehemiah 8, we see something quite unexpected. There have been ups and downs throughout this book as we've been reading it. Ups and downs due to progress and due to sin. The people rebuild the temple. That's an up. And then immediately afterward, they face a crisis of sin. That's, that's a down. The people rebuild the walls of the city. That's an up. And then later, we're going to see that they face more sin. Another down. But today, today is one of the highest points, not only in Nehemiah, but I think in all of Scripture. 
Just look at how it begins in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to pick up actually right at the very end of chapter 7, the last half of the verse of the end of chapter 7, and then we're going to read right into chapter 8. It says, And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is every pastor's dream right here. I got to share this story with you as I was thinking about this and praying on this this week, um, I, I felt like I got to see this kind of thing at work uh, this week. I'm a professor at Cairn University. That's my full-time job as I'm a part-time pastor here. Um, the other day, though, I had a student come up to me and ask me to participate in one of the student groups on campus. Now, Cairn University requires every uh, student to go to chapel on Monday and Friday, and most Wednesdays they have open. They don't have chapel every single Wednesday, um, but most Wednesdays they have, they have open. And I discovered that there was a group of about two dozen students who, when they don't have chapel on Wednesday, they gather together in one of the rooms and they just read scripture together. They read scripture. There's no flash, there's no sermon. They open up with a reading of Psalm 19 together. They close with the singing of the doxology with no instruments, just voices. But the bulk of that hour that they get together, they just read scripture. And they invited me to come in and read to them the book of Esther. And they all, because it was Purim this past week uh, for the Jewish people, they all acted out what Jewish people typically do during the reading of Esther during Purim. Um, when the book is read aloud, people boo and they hiss and make noise when the bad guy's name is read. And then they uh, cheer and they whoop and they holler when Mordecai and Esther's name are mentioned. Now, that was unusual for them to bring a professor in to read the Bible and for them to get a little rowdy like that. But usually they gather together, these students, and they read scripture. No one told them to do it. They don't get credit for any class. They don't get a grade for being there. They gather, they read, and they listen to scripture. And getting to participate in that was one of the most encouraging things I've ever done as a professor. And that's similar, I see, to what's happening here. Notice how this chapter begins. Not just some of the people, but it says all the people gather together. And you're going to see that's a recurring theme throughout this chapter. You'll hear those words, all the people, over a dozen times in the next dozen verses alone. Verse 1, all the people gather together. Verse 3, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 6, all the people answered and they said, amen, amen, and so on. You get the theme, don't you? All the people, as one, together, desiring, hungering for, and thirsting for the word of God. The people gather together, men and women, it says, anyone old enough to understand the words. You're going to hear that drumbeat throughout this passage as well. Anyone old enough to have understanding. You hear it in verse 2. We see it again in verse 3. We'll see it later in verse 7 and 8. Then again in verse 12. 
I often get asked as a pastor and as a dad how old a kid needs to be before family starts reading scripture together. Now, when do you start doing family devotions together? When my kid is two, when they're three, when they're, when they're a teenager? This passage suggests that as young as they can comprehend at least to some degree the word of God, include them in your family devotions. I ran across a great book a few years ago. I want to share it with you. It's called Bible Reading with Your Kids by John Nielsen. Less than 100 pages. It's simple. It's practical advice for every parent. It's written for you, parents. How do I read scripture with my kids? What could that look like? I'm going to take this. I'm going to actually leave this as a copy up here for you. Whoever wants it after the service, first come, first serve. If there's multiple people that want it, you can, you know, figure out like rock, paper, scissor, or whichever parent has the worst kid, they can take it with them uh, and it's yours. But, but people, they gather together here and as or Nehemiah 8, men and women, kids included, whoever's old enough to understand it, and they ask Ezra to bring out the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. They want to hear Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They are moved to hear the word of God. And it says that they stand there from early morning. The text literally reads, from the light. So from dawn, as soon as that sun was up, they stood there until the middle of the day. All day long, they're carefully listening for hours to scripture being read. I sat down and thought about this this week. I, I estimated it takes somewhere around 15 hours to read from Genesis to Deuteronomy. If you were to read it straight through, about 15 hours out loud, they were there for about six hours from dawn till midday. And as we're about to read, they probably didn't just listen to it straight through. There was a sermon, there was some explanation. But the point is, for half a day, as a group, they gathered together and were hungering for the word of God. Now, what motivated them to do this? What got them up so early in the morning to get together? Surely the Holy Spirit was at work stirring the hearts of these people. God was at work in their hearts. But I do think there's another clue here that indicates something else was going on as well. Notice how at the end of chapter 7, I read that half a verse in chapter 7, it tells us that when the seventh month came, this happened. And then we hear again at the end of verse 2 that this took place during the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar is the most significant month of them all. It's kind of like a month of holidays. It's like the time between November and New Year for us. This month that just seems to kind of go on and on with holiday after holiday, event after event. Deuteronomy 31 tells us that they would gather together men and women, children, in the seventh month, and they would listen to scripture being read out loud during these festivals. So here we see the people gather together. They ask Ezra to do what the law commands them to do. We want to hear scripture. We want to follow Deuteronomy 31. They are motivated by the word of God to hear from the word of God. God is at work here. And then verse 4 tells us, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashum, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. 
You thought you would get away with this sermon with no difficult names. You thought. But this is actually very interesting. The details of this text matter like they do in all scripture. The people build this platform, and and our translation says a wooden podium, a pulpit, if you will. Uh, The first pulpit sermon, some people say. The text actually reads here just a tower of wood, a stack of wood. So I'm not so sure it was like a literal pulpit he had in front of him. Uh, Maybe just a big stack of wood that he stood upon so that everyone could see him, everyone could hear him. But he lists these names, six men on his right hand, seven men on his left hand side. Why does the author care to list those names again? Why not just say he stood up there with six men on his right and seven men on his left? Well, if you look at those names and you compare them to other names in Ezra and Nehemiah, and Lord knows that there are a lot of other names in Ezra and Nehemiah. When you compare these names to those other names in this book, you're going to notice some interesting things. Some of the names listed here, some of these people are leaders, like Aniah, who's mentioned in chapter 10. Some of the people here are priests, like Hilkiah. Some of the people are Levites, like Padiah. And some of them are average Joes, like Mishael. So you have this mix of, and, and just lay people, all up there on the platform with Ezra. You might also notice, if you were to compare these names on this list, that a few of them appear on the list in Ezra chapter 10. Now, you might remember back to that list. It was a list of people who had divorced their wives because of their sin. You don't want to be on that list. That was a list of of notorious sinners. It was a shameful list for the people then. Three of the people on this list appeared on that list. So not only do we have a mix of leaders and lay people here, but we have a mix of this list of people who have sordid pasts. People with deep sin in their past, and yet they are serving the Lord at the right and left hand of Ezra. I see the gospel at work in this list of names. I see the gospel at work. You are never beyond the redemption of God in your life. I don't care how deep into sin you are. God can use even the broken, washed up sinners of this world for his glory. People who were once on a list of sinners are now on a list of leaders and Bible study teachers in the book of Nehemiah. Praise God, because that's you and me. The word of God has relevance for all people, and the gospel of grace cuts through the heart of even the darkest sinner. Men and women, child and adult, leader and layperson, sinner and saint, surely you fall into one of those categories on that list. The people gather as one. They build a platform. Ezra stands up there with 13 others and look at what happens. Verses 5 to 8, some of the most exciting verses in all of Scripture. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maesiah, Kelati, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This 
is revival that we're reading here. Now, you might have heard about this revival that's happening at Asbury College in Kentucky. How many of you have heard of this? For a couple weeks now, uh, there have been gathered students singing and, and praying and talking to God and, and crying out to the Lord for all hours of the day at this university. Uh, uh, maybe you aren't sure what to think of this. Quite frankly, I'm not either. I, I'm not there. I've heard mixed reviews about what's going on there. I want to be cautiously optimistic and hopeful that the Lord is doing a good work. But some of the criticisms I've heard coming out of this is that there's a severe lack of scripture and gospel being taught while this is happening. Now, I don't know. Again, I'm not there. I haven't really watched a whole lot of it going on. But here's what I do know from the words of, of God. True revival is a work of the Holy Spirit motivated through the word of God. God uses his word and the Holy Spirit to motivate the hearts of his people. Revival without scripture is simply emotionalism. It's empty emotions. Now, whatever we think of that revival, what we see here is true revival. Look at what respect the people have for the word of God. You don't see any verse in here that says, and Benjamin, the worship leader, told them to stand for the reading of God's word. You don't see that verse in here. They just do it. it. Their hearts are moved to respond to Scripture. They've got such respect for it. I'll never forget my first Bible class at Cairn University way back when. I was 18 years old. I had grown up in church. I had Christian parents, grew up in church all my life. And uh, at churches I went to, I would say, had, had decent Bible teaching, nothing terrible or heretical. But I'm not sure that I ever really heard great things theological Bible exegesis before. And I, I got into this class. It was an Old Testament Pentateuch class with Dr. Gary Snicker. Some of you know him. It was this big amphitheater-like room. It, was like, it had about 100 students all packed in. Huge class. And when the time came, Dr. Snicker strolled into the room, and he opened up his Bible, and he said, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And from there, he just took off. He dug deep into the word of God. And I heard the text that day of scripture come alive like I've never heard before. And I was hooked. I was hooked. I couldn't get enough of it. I still can't. The people here in Nehemiah seem torn with how to respond to the word of God being taught. They lift up their hands, it says, as they hear the word of God. That's, that's a biblical expression of praise and exaltation. Don't ever be afraid to lift up your hands while you're in church. It's biblical. It can be an expression of submission to God. It can be an expression of exalting God, raising your hands for him. Physical expression in worship is a good and biblical thing. They lift up their hands, and yet they're torn because they're also bowing their faces low to the ground. By the way, that's okay in church too. Sometimes we just need to get on our faces before God and humble ourselves before the Lord. But notice here what the leaders do. Thirteen other guys, all Levites, they mingle among the people as the word of God is being read, and they explain the word to them. Now, the Hebrew here is translated in the NASB. They translated the law to them. The Old Testament was mostly written in the, book, in the language of Hebrew. Um, but in Ezra's time, the people spoke mostly Aramaic. 
Now, those are sister languages. They're related to each other, but they're different enough that you might need an interpreter if all you knew is Aramaic and you're hearing Hebrew. So they might be just kind of giving a translation for the people, but the word itself in the Hebrew language means something like they made it distinct or they divided it into parts. And it probably means something more along the lines of like the Levites were helping the people to understand the Bible unit by unit, passage by passage, phrase by phrase. Ezra read the law, they explained the law, and later we're going to see that they applied the law. This is the secret sauce to great Bible teaching. You read it, you explain it, you apply it. Now this is not exactly a sermon, but the same principles apply from here to there. The Word of God is central in this revival. This sermon, if you want to call it a sermon, is driven by careful explanation and application of God's Word. But this is what is central. I am so grateful that I had a great homiletics teacher who taught me how to keep the Word of God privileged in preaching. Homiletics is the art of preaching Scripture. The man who taught me how to preach over 15 years ago is actually sitting right here, Don Cheney. Uh, our head elder, our lead elder, chair elder, whatever we call him. What do we call you? Chairman? Chairman of the board? I call him Don. <laughs> Specifically, I, I'm grateful that I did not come away from Don's homiletics class with a bunch of tricks and gimmicks designed to get people to listen or to artificially make my sermon more relevant it wasn't about how to be really creative with movie clips and how to use props on the stage to get people engaged. Don used to say, and I know this didn't originate with Don, but he's the first one I heard say this, what you win them with, you win them to. What you win them with, you win them to. He taught me how to study the Bible. <clears throat> he taught me how to draw application and illustrations that are rooted in the text of Scripture. He taught me how to keep the Lord and his word as central in the sermon. And I'm so grateful for that. But the point that we see in this text here is that it gives us a great model to base our own preaching and teaching and even Bible study on. Even if you will never preach from a pulpit like this, maybe you'll help out with the kids program, maybe with the youth, maybe you'll start a Bible study in your neighborhood with people that don't know the Lord. One of the most fruitful times for me in my ministry was when I had a, a small group of people, actually members of my own family that didn't know the Lord, we would get together once a week, we'd have dinner together, and then we would open up the Gospel of Mark and we would just read. We would read and we would stop and talk about it and explain it and apply it. It was so fruitful. Maybe you've got kids and you want to start doing family devotions together. You don't need a gimmick. You don't need a thing. You don't, you don't need any tricks. Just open the Bible each night, read a little bit from it, ask a few questions, interact with your kids, get down to earth with them, have a discussion. You will be amazed at what comes out of that. Ezra doesn't use flashy tactics here. He doesn't try to trick people to the gospel by jazzing up the message. In fact, it's not even about him. The word of God takes center stage in this passage. And by the way, I'm so grateful for that too. That it's not about the individual, but it's about the word. I'm not a terribly creative person. I don't have many, if any, original thoughts. 
I have many flaws, in fact. Sometimes I speak too fast. I sometimes slur my words. Not all of my jokes always land. But thank God, it's not about me. It's about the Lord doing a work through his word in the people of God. The more I am able to disappear behind the text of scripture, the more effective the word of God becomes for you. So Ezra, he stands up there, he reads the word. The Levites mingle among the people and help explain and apply the word. And two applications actually flow out from this as a result. Look at the first one in verses 9 to 12. Here's how the people continue to respond to the word of God. It says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. This is so cool. The people, they're hearing the word of God, and they are humbled to the core. They are humbled to tears. They are on their faces weeping and mourning over their sin, over their failures. I mean, it is a humbling thing to open up the word of God and read it sometimes, isn't it? Just to recognize the depths of our sin, we fall so short of God's glory. And yet, God is a God of great grace, isn't he? He's a God of grace. God does not leave the people in their mourning. The Levites, the leaders, they come around and they let the people know this is a day of celebration. This is not a time for mourning. This is a time for feasting. Today is a holiday. It's a holy day. It's a day of joy. So they tell the people, eat the fat, drink the sweet. The fatty portions of the meat were like the most prized portions back then. It's the yummiest portions back then. The, the sweet, that means drink up of the wine, bring out the fancy glasses, have a, have a party. This is a holiday, they're saying. They tell the people, eat the fat, drink the sweet, stop crying, have some fun. I think more Christians need to hear that message. I don't want to diminish the very real struggles that some believers have with depression or with grief or, the, or, or even their sorrow for their sin. There is a time for that. But sometimes we need to be told, celebrate God. Get up off of your faces and rejoice in what God is doing. Christianity is not all suffering and trial and hardship. We rejoice that God is our Savior. There should be seasons and there should be times when, when we prepare a table for a feast and eat together like brothers and sisters in Christ. When we enjoy the good blessings that God has given us, when, when we reflect on the grace and the mercy that is ours in Christ in the cross. But in all this celebration, I don't want you to miss the other commandment here. Eat the fat, drink the wine, but also send portions to him who has nothing prepared. Do you notice that phrase? That means when you fill your table with good food during the holiday, don't forget about the people who don't have a table or food to eat. Don't forget that it's not just about you celebrating what God has done in you. 
do something for others. Now, I know it's March and Thanksgiving and Christmas are a long way away, but think for a moment about how your family celebrates the holidays. I'm sure you get together. I'm sure you have a lot of food. Maybe you have gifts and presents and fun stuff like that. You do some games together. I'm sure your family does something religious during those holidays too. You come to church for a service or two. You read the birth story of Christ on Christmas morning. But the question I want to ask, based on the question from the text, is this. Is there any true religion during that time in your family? And by true religion, I'm using that uh, based on what James says in James 1. He says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. I'm including myself when I say this, but we are all really good at serving our own family and our own church during Christian holidays. And yet many of us fall short, at least in some part, to take some of that holiday and share Christ with others. We've got to remember it's not just about us celebrating, but it's about us sharing that message with the world. It can't stop here. Think about Easter coming up. What will your family do to make this Easter not just about yourself? Is there a college student that maybe is here and can't get home and you can invite them over to your house and celebrate with them? Is there a family in your community that you know you should invite to your home, to your table? How is the Lord calling you to reach out to the less fortunate during this coming holiday? That's part of what this text challenges us to consider. The Israelites are told, stop crying, start celebrating, encourage each other to take those blessings that God has given them and to bless other people with it. And look again at what the text says in verse 12. This is the reaction of the people to this encouragement. It says in verse 12, all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. They did exactly as they were told because they understood the words of Scripture. This brings us back again to the emphasis of the text. They understood what God desired of them, so they went out and did it. It was that simple. In this case, it was, quite frankly, a pretty easy command to follow. Go out and feast. Okay, right? That's not a hard one in Scripture. But the point is that they were obedient to the Word of God. They allowed the message of the Scriptures to guide their lives and point them forward. And this revival doesn't end here either, though. On day two, they all get up. They're still hungry for the Word of God. Look at how this passage ends, starting in verse 13. It says, Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found, written in the law, how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. 
and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Now, this is so cool. The leaders, they all get together on the second day to keep this holy revival going. And as they're reading scripture, they realize this is a holy month. And there is a holiday coming up right around the corner. It would be like waking up on December 15th and realizing we are in the month of December. Christmas is right around the corner. We haven't done anything to celebrate. What are we about to do? Now, in this case, it's not Christmas. It's a, it's a festival called the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as far as Israelite holidays goes, this was kind of a weird one. Kind of cool, kind of weird, depending on your perspective of it. Uh, how many of you enjoy camping? I'm not talking about glamping, right? Glamping is another thing. It's like glorious camping. When, when we were in Michigan, there were a lot of glampers around us. People would say, I'm going camping this weekend. And then they would get into their second home and drive to that campsite, right? I mean, this giant enormous camper and they would drive to a paved parking lot with hundreds of other mobile campers around and these things were enormous i mean they had running water in them they had showers they had stoves televisions internet their own zip code i mean it was enormous this thing that they were driving that is not camping camping is when you sleep in a tent under trees you go to the bathroom in the woods all with the ever-present danger of skunks and cocaine bears all around you at all time. The Israelites were commanded to have a camping holiday once a year. They had to gather together, build these little booths, so these little huts made out of palm trees and whatever they had around, and they would have to sleep in them for the whole week. Why? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, there was a time in Israel's history where for 40 years, no one had homes. They moved from place to place in the wilderness right out of the, after they got out of Egypt, before they came into the land of Israel, they moved from place to place and they lived in tents. They lived in booths. They moved from one place to another and this holiday recreates that event and forces them to remember God's provisions for them during that time in the wilderness. It's so neat. Now, I'm sure for some Israelites, this was their favorite holiday. It would have been my kids. They love camping. For others, they probably couldn't wait until it was over. That would be my mom. They don't like camping. But the Israelites are commanded to gather together. They're listening to this law, and they come across this passage. Perhaps it was in Leviticus 23 that talks about this holiday. Maybe Deuteronomy 16, which describes it. But they come across this passage, and they realize, uh-oh, camping season is upon us. So they send word throughout the whole community. They gather together to celebrate this holiday. And the text even tells us in verse 17 that since the time of Joshua, they had not celebrated this holiday like this. Now that's a little bit weird to say because in Ezra chapter 3, the Bible clearly says the people kept the Feast of Booths right when they returned the first time from the exile. So that gives me the impression that the intent of that verse there in verse 17 is that they hadn't really celebrated this holiday in this kind of way since the time of Joshua. It's like if you had like the, just the perfect Christmas, the perfect Christmas, and you come away from that holiday season and you say, we have never had a Christmas like that before. Well, yeah, you've had Christmases before, but never like that. They celebrate this holiday with such passion and emotion, and celebration, that they come away and they say, we've never done this before. 
This is something unique. It is revival motivated by the word of God. Motivated by a study of God's word. Bible study leads to revival. Now, I thought about this passage over this week, and I I felt overwhelmed by the sheer amount of potential application it has for our lives. It's hard to miss. There's so much here. Last week, we had to think hard about it. Nehemiah 7, why is that in Scripture? All these names, what's the point? This week, it's smacking us right in the face. It's hard to miss this week. So here's just three principles, three applications that we can draw and we've seen from this text. First of all, as you see on the screen, Bible study motivates true revival. How long has it been since you have opened up your Bible and really studied? I'm not talking about just reading it or skimming it or getting through it, but really studied and meditated on it and thought about what does God have to say to me right here? Digging in deeply. And maybe you're not even sure where to start. That sounds a little foreign to you, not sure what to do when you open up the Bible. That's okay. We can help with that. That's why we're here. There are some great resources out there. We're going to put a picture of a couple of them on the screen here for you. I think if we have those pictures, maybe, maybe not. Do we have any? They're not showing up. Okay. So a little technical issue here. But what I'd encourage you to do instead then, maybe if you're not sure where to start in the Word of God, send us an email. Reach out to one of your leaders. Hey, there's the books. So How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. And then this other book called Living by the Book by uh, Hendricks and Hendricks. Both great resources just to help you to know how to study your Bible better. Just help you dig in more. What do I do when I open up the Bible? What am I supposed to do? These books walk you right through that. You can reach out to a leader. We're happy to help you. Better yet, join a Bible study. We have great offerings of different Bible studies here at Riverstone. Men's groups, women's groups, men's and women's groups, kids' groups, youth groups. I mean, all sorts of groups. Stop at the the, uh, welcome desk back there, and you can find out all about what we're doing. There's a great class that takes place right now during the first service where men and women gather to study God's Word. I'd encourage you to check that out next week. Get involved. Learn. Grow. For those of you who run one of those studies, I would encourage you to think about how this text of Scripture impacts students. Think about the way that you run them. Sometimes we need to be reminded to refocus our Bible studies on the Bible. Strange we have to say that, right? But we forget to let Scripture take center stage and direct the course of our studies. True revival is motivated by the Word of God. Second principle that we've seen in this text is that we ought to rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ. That community of believers was told, stop crying, get up, and celebrate. They had a lot of reasons to mourn. They were sinners. There's sin all over this book. Their sin was habitual. It was recurring. It was extreme at times. And yet there is a time to feel sorrow and there's a time to get up and celebrate and have joy in the grace and love of God. Meditate on the cross of Calvary. Think about Jesus Christ who died for your sins, who rose again, who provides unmerited salvation for those of us who have not earned it. Praise God for the gospel. While you were still in your sins, Christ died for you. 
That is a reason to rejoice. Third, we have to remember, even in that rejoicing, that expressions of thanks should include expressions of charity as well. Don't let your celebration of Christ stop in the church. Just as the community was told to, to stop mourning and stop crying, but go out and feast and celebrate, but also to take that celebration and help the poor, we should consider what we can do for the less fortunate around us. That's not just their job. That's something that we have to consider as well. It's very easy, strangely enough, as Christians to get caught up in this, like, we call it the Christian bubble. You know what I'm talking about there, the Christian bubble? I first experienced the Christian bubble when I went to Bible college. For four years, day in and day out, I was surrounded by believers. I was being taught by Christian professors. It was a great environment. I had to go to chapel several times a week. I mean, it was a great environment of growth, but rarely in those four years did I ever encounter someone who didn't know Jesus Christ unless I went looking for it. And I found as a pastor, after stepping out of Bible college for 15 years of full-time ministry in the pastorate, it was the same thing. Day in and day out, I'm working with the flock, with members professing Christians of a local church. And it was rare that I would encounter an unbeliever during the week unless I went out looking for them or unless I was intentional about forming those relationships. Sometimes we can get caught in that Christian bubble and we can find ourselves so engrossed in just what we're doing here that we forget there's a world outside of us that needs Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, again, Easter is coming right around the corner. What can you do this Easter season that would be helpful to people in your community that need the Lord? What can you do that would be helpful for people that are poor, people that don't have as much, people that are impoverished, people that need a home to be in. Get outside of that Christian bubble and let the celebration of Jesus Christ overflow into the world. But in all of this, don't forget the main point. Revival starts with the word of God. This motivates, inspires, pushes, informs, directs all that we do as believers. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will use the word of God in your life, both individually in your times of study and collectively as a church to revive the hearts of the people right here. And by doing so, may the Lord then work to share the gospel with the nations and make disciples of all the people who need it. I'm going to pray to that end briefly here. I'd ask you, though, after I'm done praying, stick around just for a few minutes. We have a very brief and important announcement from a few of our leaders. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite those leaders to come up as I'm praying here. Father, thank you so much for the gift of the Word of God. What a treasure we hold in our hands and so often don't value enough. I pray for our people here that you would help them to be motivated, inspired, encouraged, challenged, convicted by the word of God. I pray that that would spark true revival in their hearts individually and in the hearts of the church corporately. And I pray that that revival would in turn be able to go out to the nations so that more people will hear the name of Jesus Christ. I pray people would be discipled in you. And I pray that we would see people in heaven because of how we read scripture today. I ask God that you would help us not to be lackadaisical in our study of the word, 
Help us, Lord, not to be impassionate, but Lord, help us to dig deep, to be motivated, and to be encouraged by what you have for us each and every day. Thank you, Lord, for the word. What a treasure it is. We pray these things in your name. Amen.